0: To get the let out with Dr. Chuck Stead, and uh, once again, we have the very good fortune of having Chief Vincent Mann with us this week. It's been really, uh, certainly to me, very impressive his his grasp of the history and his knowledge of his, of his people, and uh, and the wisdom that he's been so good uh, to to share with us for these past two weeks. Uh, so I'm very anxious to. To continue that discussion at the end of uh, today's episode, Dr. Chuck, what are we going to talk about today? Today, we're going to wrap up the chapter on the Ramaphos called Ramapose Part 3. Okay. So without any further ado, ladies and gentlemen, here's Dr. Chuck Stead and Episode 7 <laughs> of Get the Lead Out.
1: Thank you, Joe. Sometime after my friend Timothy left the Catholic school, I followed my dad Walt into the woods on his deer hunt. We were not taking part in a drive in which some hunters do a coordinated walk through the forest to encourage deer movement in the direction of other hunters posted in wait. This time I just followed my dad as he did a little tracking until we hunkered down under a thick old pine tree. This was the quiet waiting game. The stillness caused me to retrace all the events of the last days, the weeks, the months, until I came up with the story about Timothy's prayers, about how his grandfather had him saying those extra prayers. I asked Walt about this, about the presence of such prayers in our world. In his fashion, Walt did not answer right off. But after a bit, he told me about his old friend, Freddie Farrison who he believed was a Blackfoot who had come to live among the Ramapos back in the 1930s. Freddie, whose native name was Yellow Dog with Short Tail, found employment with the American Brakeshoe in Malwa, New Jersey, because he could play baseball. In those days, most large companies sponsored ball teams, and Freddie was a baseman, while Walt, who actually never worked at the Break shoe, played shortstop. Eventually, the two of them went deer hunting together, and Freddy was impressed with Walt's ability to wait out the deer. He told Walt that this must be because Walt was, in fact, a deer, that somewhere in Walt's lineage, he was a deer. On the day that Walt and I went hunting, we saw only a few does in the distance, and Walt didn't take a shot at them. But on the walk out, on that day, we found a single deer antler, and I took it with me and eventually made Walt and I both a necklace with a piece from the antler. The Ramapo's have found that the academic does not turn an entirely deaf ear to stories, but it's the folk myths rooted in discrimination by the discrimination deniers, as it were, of native presence, that will choose to acknowledge what is there. Many local histories, until very recently, have manifested the negative stereotype of a lawless mountain people, as illustrated by Josephine Emerson's essay, The Jackson Whites. It is published in a collection by the Appalachian Mountain Club in 1945. Like other local authorities at mid-century, Emerson repeats the Jackson White origin myth, which involves, oh, slavery and prostitution on behalf of the occupying British forces on Manhattan Island during the Revolution. She makes no effort to examine the credibility of the story, that in fact it was invented only a few years earlier by another local essayist. In 1936, John C. Storms published a small book entitled The Origin of the Jackson Whites of the Ramapo Mountains. And while the term itself has long been in use through the 19th century in reference to populations of mixed ethnicity, Storms added the ancestry of English and West Indian women brought into the country as prostitutes for the British soldiers of New York City during the Revolution. The problem here is that the story takes on a life of its own. And with every retelling, every so-called harmless spin of the tale, this sets the pace for what is to follow. By 1974, when David Stephen Cohen published his The Ramapo Mountain People, the first chapter is devoted to the origin of the Jackson Whites. While Cohen found no evidence that the Ramapos had any historic connection to the story, its presence in the book angered the community who for many years had tried to distance themselves from the urban myth. In Ramapo, No single effort has done more to incite an anti-academic sentiment than Cohen's book. As mentioned earlier, it in fact fired up native pride and ultimately caused the Ramapo's to declare their tribal identity a few years later. But the deep-seated hostility that Cohen tapped into is about so much more than a book. Primarily, the book negates mixed Indian lineage and offers only the slightest nod toward the Ramapo's claim of Munsee ancestry. Cohen writes, It would probably have been the Lenape or Delaware Indians, indigenous to the region. It probably could not have involved more than one or two individuals. Or there would have been more documented evidence. That's how he put it. He makes a strong case for Dutch and freed black slaves germinating the mix over the years, maintaining numerous Dutch surnames— and Julian Solomon has noted a contemporary band of Muncie Mohacan Indians in Wisconsin, with some bearing the very old Rockland County name of DeGroat. Therefore, curiously, Cohen's own genealogical research can serve to identify the Ramapo's claim. As a boy learning about trapping from elders in the community, I never questioned their ethnicity or their right to be Native. These men often expressed a critical attitude, toward citified education, and some of them talked about the sad days of the American Indian schools like that of the Carlisle School in Pennsylvania. These were institutions of re-education where Native children were boarded and trained in the ways of white society. They were strict and taught that the Indian world was over and replaced by the white Christian world. I heard them talk of beatings and severe punishments. These schools were supported by the Bureau of Indian Affairs, as well as a great many progressive Christian councils and churches. I grew up watching John Wayne movies at the Lafayette Theater in Suffren, where recognizable faces of local villagers, the faces of de Grote, Mann, de and Jennings' children, and I would all cheer on Wayne as he killed the Indians. By the time I talked with my friend Timothy about his grandfather, I had been reared in a world that demonized the red people and heralded the white ones leaving the black ones in a sort of post-slavery slump. These are only the memories of a kid looking back at a solitary history. Now consider a native elder who has lived a life clinging to a narrative and exposing that story, their story, to an academic who in turn reshapes it and in so doing tells it back to them, corrected. This is what Cohen did. He wrote their story informed by his preconceived idea and like many an academic, he chose the voice he wanted to hear. Writing a version appropriate to one's field of study, a narrative seeking truth and at the same time holding up academic standards, is of course a noble sentiment. Mark Raymond Harrington, a fine scholar of Lenape culture, no doubt had the best of intentions when he penned his Indians of New Jersey Dickon Among the Lenape's, a delightful adventure story that incorporates a lifetime of native study. Originally published under the title of Dickon Among the Lenape Indians, published in 1938, this book tells of a young white boy who was adopted by Lenape tribe and learns the way of the people. Harrington brings so much of the Lenape life into focus that the reader comes to accept every nuance as commonplace for these Algonquin-speaking people. He even includes a short Lenape dictionary of language phrases at the back of the book. The Dickens adventure was popular among white as well as native school children, as it was seen as a vehicle to, well, neutralize the differences. In his exhaustive contribution to Kraft's masterwork on the Lenape, David O. again and again with the tenacity of a legal investigator, argues down the Ramapo's native ancestry. In one particular endnote, he comments on the argument that the Ramapo traditional herbal cures and folk remedies are similar to that of historic Lenape. He even acknowledges that his predecessor, David Cohen, made note that these cures may be survivals of authentic Indian culture. And he agrees with Cohen, who goes on to state that this is not enough to be taken as genuine Indian ancestry, as it is really a part of a common rural knowledge, in the same endnote, Ostriker takes on the telling of traditional tales as being a cultural link to their past, and then challenges this as a telling methodology that they learned from him during his own teaching job as part of the American Indian education program between 1981 and 1983. Herein is a fascinating conundrum: the white Indian educator who worked with the Ramapos to help them recover their traditions, turns on the same people and challenges their credibility. It would seem that the Ramapos are, either way, a discredited and marginalized people, at least by the standards of a dominant academic society. But if the academic would scratch just beneath the surface, he encounters stories that, by their very existence, challenge his findings. On a deer hunt in 1963, Walt shared a story with me about white deer. Apparently, he would not shoot a white deer as it was believed to be some sort of living embodiment of spirit, sort of like a gamekeeper. He suggested that while this was clearly a local superstition, it was nonetheless something that carried weight in the community. He told me that he picked up this idea in his youth from someone like Ferrison, or maybe a man or maybe a De Grote. He didn't remember who actually told him this first. He said it was bad luck to shoot the white deer. To do so would mean the game would no longer present themselves. This is how he said it. Game would no longer present. Now, years later, I found in John Beerhurst's Meth- Mythology of the Lenape* his notes on the Ganyo the white deer, telling of a Seneca story. Essentially, it's the story of a boy who ultimately frees the white deer and in doing so, populates the world with animals that followed the white deer, the gamekeeper. It would stand to reason that the white deer story had in some way affected my father's generation of hunters, even though they were white. Stories are really the foundation of who the Ramapo-Lenape are. It is from their stories that their claim of native identity is there. But but stories are, are not genealogical records. That's the issue. In the world of the BIA, written records are the foundation on which native credibility is established. It is this final conundrum that continues to trip up the Ramapo. Being an oral people, their written record is scant at best. Howard Howard, professor of religious studies at Vanderbilt University, tells us this. He says, fundamental transformations in meaning that occurred when traditions that were essentially oral performances in which meaning was dependent upon the narrator's presentation style are reduced to texts. Yes, the written word insists on traveling in only one direction, while oration embodies the freedom of spirit that allows for many directions, shaping native culture Stories and spirit into the written word transforms identity to the standard desired by those who shape it. Just as Timothy's grandfather insisted that the boy match prayers learned from an elder to the ones studied in the school, the Ramapo insist their stories will live beyond a BIA academic footnote of rejection. Today, the Ramapo's hold powwows, share sweat lodges, while visiting nations come along and continue to study their own history. A determined people, their intent is to outlast their detractors. To be a Ramapo is to know there is a deck stacked against you, whether it's the musings of a Rutgers scholar, or as we shall see, the stigmatization of media and Hollywood. A question that needs to be addressed by this community is, Having long lived with a predetermined identity, one fashioned by an external ruler, can they leave it behind? Familiarity, even with negativity, breeds a certain security. Shedding what is familiar to embrace what is not is a powerful commitment, and it requires a powerful medicine. Medicine comes in many forms, it can be helpful or destructive. It's usually a little of both. A personality destined to be an American icon would further the process of buckling down to power, to which the Ramapo's had long been accustomed. The work of the common man's industrialist, the maker of the Model T, was destined to impact the Ramapo watershed and the Ramapo people, that story of which is still unfolding.
0: This sets the stage, really, for the rest of Get the Lead Out. And it's amazing how that story is so intertwined in this one. But getting back to the Ramapo people and and their story, I would say the first thing that we can do to neutralize and hopefully reverse the wrongs that, that have been done and, and trying to bury this history and trying to sublimate this history or make it a part of something else when it has its own identity is simply to tell these stories to make sure that we keep on telling the truth that we keep on you know trumpeting what the reality of this situation is not what the BIA would like it to be or or any other factional group would like it to be so spreading knowledge and information and hearing the voice of of Chief Vincent Mann and, and others, is the first step. Uh, what what are some of the other things that we can do to try to overcome this systemic racism, really, is what we're talking about here?
1: Well, uh, Chief, before before you respond to that, we would just like to say that, you know, I teach at Ramapo College. Individuals at the college have been, um, some of them have, some of them, have... Uh, been good in in working with the Ramapo Nation. But the college as a whole still, I think, it's a school named after the Ramapo people, for God's sakes. (laughs) It still needs to have a proper center. It still needs to have, I would say, a museum, a a learning center, a place for language classes. It needs to incorporate and build its partnership with the Ramapo Nation because you've got the college, you've got the river, you've got the valley, you've got the mountains. Everything is named after the people, and yet the college doesn't have that center. It's been good. I think the chief would agree with me. It's been, it's been good, but those have been individual efforts. I think the institution needs to partake in something more than a, a land declaration. It, it needs to actually have a base to offer for the students and the Ramapo's to interact with. What do you think, chief?
2: Given the fact that the university sits on Ramapo stolen land,
1: <laughs> um, yes,
2: so it says a lot. I mean, you know, one of our relatives owns three hundred acres, and that three hundred acres is a very v- valuable area for farming um, and other things. You know, I mean, we have a village underneath the, the tennis courts, right?
1: Yep, the tennis courts. You yeah,
2: know, yeah. Yep. You know, and the land deed for all that land, our relative who held that by title, who could read and right. Signatures with an X, and I think it sold for like a dollar fifty an acre. Where in Mawa at that time was like twelve hundred and fifty dollars an acre. And so, I mean, the story is just going down Route 202, it's the same thing the monastery was, right? You know, the village when they all went to church and they came back, and all the houses were burnt down, and then they moved them across the street. And then because of the flooding, they had them, they were going to move them again, but they said you couldn't go back to where you were because you can't prove that you had title to the land, and then they had moved the rest of those folks up on Stack Hill. I think that the relationship, again, you nailed that right on the tip there, has been individuals. Ramapo College, especially by the fact that it carries our name, but also by the fact that it's a state university. That state university has an obligation to speak truth and the truth here in northern New Jersey is that the Ramapo Munsee-Wanapi Nation is, in fact, intact, is, in fact, descended from the original people. It does not matter whether or not we have African-American blood, Irish blood, English blood. It doesn't change the fact of who we are. And people of the likes like Osh and Mr. Cohen, they had an agenda, right? And his book was a thesis, right? Yep. Um. And you know, once you once you tell a lie, you have to continually tell that lie, or, or you're on the outskirts, right? Yep. Uh, uh, of all academia, and Bobis well, sure, his narrative is beginning to dwindle. So again, uh, we heard about people fear what they don't know, and David Cohen fears what he does not know. David Cohen accused me of making anti-Semitic remarks when we did a panel discussion with the New Jersey Historical Society and my response back to them. When I had this conversation, they didn't have up the whole entire video, but then after they had a conversation with me, they did. And what my comments were, was that how could David Cohen be so persistent on trying to eradicate the Muncie people when his ancestors went through the same thing, right? How do you take that and turn it around and put it onto us? He right, is, right. He has been like almost a single-handed detriment to the radical people. Right? He still is doing those things. David Ostriker is still doing those things. There's a history there with David. He was kicked out of here by our academia from around the country. Raised their voices when our petition was denied. Even Rutgers University, they have an Office of Problem Resolution offered to step into that. The late Kerry Edwards had to defend himself, and when he defended himself in a letter to the state legislature, he listed all of his credentials. His credentials took up two typed pages. They tried to say, oh, that we were who we were. And what he ended up proving and saying was that State of New Jersey's legislature did not just sit there and say, oh, well, you know, here's these underprivileged people. Let's throw this over there for them and they can become this and maybe the federal government will support them Said it was. That's not what happened. They did so much research to prove who, that we were, who the people are, and quite frankly, federal government does acknowledge who we are. They just don't acknowledge who we are for the government relationship where it's kind of stupid, right? Dependence of the federal government. Yep. We're all dependents of the state of New Jersey. We're all dependents of the counties in which we live in, and we're all dependents of the towns in which we live in. It's the obligation of all of those entities to care for us, to help us, to be supportive of us. I have a, a, a tremendous amount of—I guess I could call it—actually, anger that an, another human being whose his, whose ancestral history would prove to be similar to ours, and yet that person decided that he's going to try to be this beacon on a hill saying that the Ramapo's are are just freed slaves and Dutch and German with one or two Native Americans. Well, I mean, that's virtually impossible. There are records showing that all the way back into the 1800s where there was over 2,000 Ramapo's living in the mountains. Uh I mean... You know, Mr. Pearson, he stepped forward with a letter that he wrote to the forefathers of town of Ramapo, New York, when they were going to, they voted on already to call it Mechanicsburg or Mechanicsville. And he wrote in that letter that here we are, we have taken the land, we have taken the very lives of these people, and we have even taken their names. And the least we can do is name this town after them. And it was named the town of Ramapo. That's not something that I wrote. That is what the man who started the first nail factory in the country, right? That's him, right? right? He was somebody who was of affluent nature. You know, he didn't have an agenda. He was just willing to acknowledge our existence. The federal government has acknowledged our existence. The state has acknowledged our existence. And we acknowledge the existence of the
0: federal government. Exactly. First of all, for Cohen to use anti-Semitism as a a ruse to try to quiet you is really outrageous because what he's doing is he's insulting his own people who have suffered and continue to suffer anti-Semitism in this country recently, more so than than in a very long time. You know, you, you mentioned a moment ago the anger that you feel certainly the frustration, but certainly the anger that you feel, how do you deal with that? I hear you speak with wisdom. I hear you, Chief, speaking with deep-rooted honor and admiration for your people, and yet at the same time, a real sense of frustration over what has been done to sublimate your history. How do you do that? How do you manage not to speak with anger about this injustice?
2: When I was a little guy up in grade school, school was horrible. What I learned was that every time I opened my mouth, say something, I was either being bullied or abused by the kids, or I was being bullied or abused and singled out by the teachers. And at one point, well, I didn't speak. So now all of a sudden there's something wrong with me, right? I'm one of those Jackson Whites, right? So I was just born a screwed up kid. And one day I was getting my knuckles wrapped with a ruler. Remember, I didn't speak in school. And after the second time that I got hit, I grabbed that ruler. The teacher got infuriated with me because I wouldn't let go of it. She took and dragged me down to the principal's office where I had to sit and wait for my father to come. When my father came there, he literally went off on the principal and the teacher and whoever else was there, and he explained to them in no uncertain terms that if anybody ever touched his son again, he was going to bring the weight of the legal system down upon their head. Now, when we left there and I got into the car, my dad scolded me, disrespecting an elder, and stuck with me all that time. Now, I, when I got off the school bus and was in our community at Wonder Lake in West Milford, which was pretty much all Ramapo's, I was probably one of the loudest kids there was, right? Yeah. Because I knew that I wasn't going to be hit. I knew I wasn't going to be bullied, you know? Um, and so eventually, like around third grade, uh, at some point, you know, I was standing in line at the cafeteria. You held your tray and your fork and your spoon and your knife and your hand on the side of your tray. And I was just then standing in line, and this German kid turned around, and he smashed me over my head with his tray. Mm-hmm. At that point, I lost it, and I went to give him back what he gave me, except for he put his arm up. And when he did, my fork stuck in his arm. <laughs> and, th- and then here comes the savage, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, there you go.
2: Yep. And I was put into a room by myself, unattended, was totally distraught, seeing blood and screaming and yelling and the way that I was treated, and again, to rock in my chair, and I fell over, hit my head, um, I believe I had to be taken to the hospital, um, and then after that, I was taken out of that school, and I was put into private school for two years to work with my hands. And the I'll never forget, I believe it was in Morristown, the uh, person who ran that school, her name was Dr. Love. And Dr. Love wanted to put me on Ritalin, and my dad said, "You no way are you going to be putting my son on Ritalin. Good What's for gonna him. What's going to happen to him when he turns 18 and goes out into the world? Yeah. Good so my the... dad pulled me out of there, put me back in school in West Mill for seventh grade, And I didn't get science and social studies because I had to go to another separate school to work with my hands twice a week. So I have been inundated my entire young life with being told that I don't exist, being treated as if I was enslaved to some system that they held dominance and sway over me. When I became an older person, and I learned that I could express myself, I did. And a lot of times that came out in the form of anger. When I turned 30 years old, my whole world changed. And what I mean by that was that I spent a lot of time by myself and I began to understand why I was created, who I was, what my gifts were. And the gift of, of listening before responding, allows me to hear everybody's words, good, bad, or indifferent. And when I speak, I tend to speak with everyone's words. That gives me compassion. That tells me that remembering our original instructions of wisdom, of love, respect, honor, and the one that is the most important that I walk with in my life from that time forward is humility. And those are our original instructions right? And in the religion world, there is the Ten Commandments, right? Or something similar to that, where those are the guiding tools of humanity, right? For those people. And yet, they don't live by those. They don't preach those. All you hear is a story about Joseph or David, and that's a shame. Uh, We hear David Cohen talk about how these myths and folklore Well, that's what the Bible is. The Bible is myths and folklore. They're stories that are presented to people for the people who are listening to be able to relate to what the word was, which was written down on those Ten Commandments. And yet it gets lost in there because of power, sway, and dominance over a people.
0: You know, what I hear in what your father said and now what you're saying is a kind of a quality of restraint, a quality of self-restraint, but also a quality of, of temperance, of empathy, of, uh, of all the things that are required in order to have a decent and a meaningful conversation. Your father did two things in, in the story that you told. He, he told the truth to the people inside the school, the powers that be, He told the truth. He presented the facts. And then when he came outside, he basically said to you, you're never going to be able to benefit from that truth or those facts if you get into fights and disrespect your elders. You've got to somehow broker the both, both of those two things together, which ain't easy. It's just really hard to do. And yet it's what Martin Luther King has done. It's what Gandhi did. And it's what I think you're trying to do right now.
2: Yeah, you know, just to add into what you're saying, it's an inherent trait of Muncie-speaking people. Before 12,000 years ago to 2023, it's inherent of us. Yes, we can defend ourselves. Yes, we can get on a pulpit and scream and yell. Yes, we can show up with a picket sign. Yes, we can physically defend ourselves. But that is not the first thing that we do. It was never the first thing that our ancestors did. We are known as the peacekeepers, right? The Muncie speaking people. We were the ones who kept this entire region stable. The, when the British and the French decided that they were going to utilize people in a certain way, they tended to, to remove that. I mean, we had our, that was our civil war. My great grandfather Abram fought on the side of the Americans. Yeah, that's the side that he fought on in the Revolutionary War. Other Muncie people or other Lenape people, you know, were on the side of the British, and they'll stand up and say, "Well, we we're, were the ones who killed two hundred and something Americans." Well, that's fine, but the British—you don't speak British now, right? I mean that that kind of thought is something that is taught. No one is born into this world with hate in their heart. Everyone is a good human being, and if everybody carried their original instructions of love, respect, honor, wisdom, and walked their entire existence with humility. If you walk your life with humility, that you will never think that you are better than that person standing next to you, regardless of where they come from, what color they are, what language they speak, boy or girl, it doesn't matter. And if we remember those original instructions, if we go back to the Ten Commandments, if we go back to, you know, the, the original words that were ever written and get rid of all of the words in between, what an amazing world we would be living in. Why do we have multiple creation stories? Because Kishal the creator, right, removed us from this place because humans were given... The gift of free will. The gift of free will is something that is abused. It's not kept in the balance of life. You use your free will to live your life and resemblance of something, right? Right. And if we look to nature. Nature is perfect. That's yep. the only thing that exists that's perfect, right? That's true. The Creator has given us everything we need to survive. The natural gas in the under the in the land, right? It means the oil in the land. None of those things would be a problem if we human beings didn't use our free will to want to take that and extort it. When you walk with humility, you're always thinking about everything and everyone else. You walk your life in a good way.
0: You know, this is a perfect way to end the stories because what you've just said is really, I think, at the heart of of all of it. You know, I'm reminded of the great quote, the arc of the moral universe bends towards justice. This is how you bend it towards justice, by sharing this wisdom, by trying to speak in peace, but in truth. I really appreciate that we've been able to do this. And Chief, I very much appreciate and admire what you stand for, what you've said here. And Dr. Chuck, I thank you for going through the efforts that you have over a period of years to try to to speak truth to power and to bring all of this out. I hope we can have more of these conversations. Well, this is good. I mean, thank you. This is this is your production. This is the the work that you do, and it's it's great. It's a wonderful
1: vehicle. And Chief Man, um, this has been a lot of fun. I hope that you can come back sometime for some a uh, few more episodes.
2: It would truly be my honor.
1: Thank you so much.
0: I also want to say thank you very much to Chief Vincent Mann. And we're going to continue to tell the story. And, and I've got my homework cut out for me now. I need to, <laughs> I need to do a lot more uh, studying and research myself. But boy, what a great start. Thank you all so much. We'll see you next week with more Get the Let Out. Take care, everybody. Thanks a lot. for a word from our favorite sponsor, the Montgomery Book Exchange. It's your hometown used bookstore located at 61A Clinton Street in the heart of the Montgomery, New York Business District. Folks, you're going to love the book exchange. This is a place where great books survive the test of time, where you can enjoy a book read by readers a generation before you. You might even find notes in the margins giving you an insight as to what mattered most with that previous reader that's how the montgomery book exchange turns a great book into a shared experience and the montgomery book exchange is known throughout the hudson valley and beyond for innovations like their 20 for 20 dollar book stacks or their intimate author readings and signing experiences how about their member-driven book club selections and book club talks their monthly zoom and in-person book auctions and handmade montgomery this is a wonderful event featuring local artisans and hundreds of beautiful handmade crafts and keepsakes. And how about getting store credits in the form of Book Bucks? Bring your well-loved or gently used books in for a store credit. Now, it's closed on Mondays, but it's open Tuesdays through Saturdays from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. and on Sunday from 12 noon to 4 p.m. Want more information? Just go to montgomerybookexchange.com or call them at 845-764-764. 1787 that's 8457641787 now there's one more thing they even have a special location at 8 factory street dedicated to your young readers They call it the Children's Chapter, and it features a reading garden where your children can discover the joy of reading in a wonderful and stimulating learning environment. Now, my kids are all 30-something now, but I have four beautiful grandchildren, Jimmy, Sienna, Stella, and JJ, and I'm bringing all four of them down to the Children's Chapter. Also at this location, you'll find Miss Claire's Music Cupboard, featuring the award-winning, research-based, kinder music program the children's chapter is open wednesdays through saturdays check the website for specific class times that match your child's age you can contact the children's chapter at 845-522-9652 montgomerybookexchange.com your hometown used bookstore you're gonna love this place